are entering the Freedom Hut. The increasingly insane hashtag resistance thinks that they can make comparisons between Ivanka's email and Hillary's email debacle will destroy that lie. And also look at how one judge from, that's right, the Ninth Circuit, thinks that he can overrule the executive branch. And what's going on with the caravan in Tijuana? That and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. Great to have you with me. Thanksgiving week is upon us. Man, I can taste the turkey right now. I just can almost just imagine that gravy. Just getting some of it on my shirt because I love that gravy so much. The gravy is very important, by the way. Do not skimp on the gravy. Make sure that you really bring your A game because you could have a great bird. You pour weak sauce on a great bird. doesn't really matter anymore. Now you Now you got a mediocre bird. You don't want that. Now, we've got some important issues to get into today, including what's going on with this caravan at Tijuana, um, infighting in the Democrat side of things. That's always fun. Look at what the Democrats are doing to fight with each other. Uh, Trump finally released a, a statement on Khashoggi, uh, this Saudi dissident who was a U.S. Uh, permanent resident, got brutally murdered in a consulate, in the Saudi consulate in, in Turkey, in Istanbul. We got some updates on that for you and all the rest of it. But I mean, there, there's just one story that I wanted to dive into today with all of you that um, is really a reminder of what we need to expect going forward. And that is that Ivanka Trump has come into the uh, the attention, the negative attention of the media for the first time in a while. They They usually stay away. You know, Ivanka doesn't really get involved in the more contentious, at least publicly, the more contentious political issues. But she used a personal email account to send hundreds of emails about government business in the first year in office. Um, And what you can imagine what immediately happens here is the left goes into full-on freakout mode about how, oh, see... Look at all the hypocrisy with Hillary's emails. That was a big deal, but this isn't a big deal. My friends, this is pathetic, okay? Let, let me give you the details of this so far. And I, and I have to because, unfortunately, this is what we're going to be doing. We need to get used to this. This is trench warfare, and that means we're going to be playing a lot of political defense the next two years. There's no way around it. I, I wish that I could come in here and we could talk... Uh, we could talk more about policy that could be enacted. I mean, we'll still talk policy, but I mean policy that might actually get done and what the best way is for the government to do it. Instead, what we're going to end up talking about is this and that completely bullcrap investigation of this administration figure, that administration figure, Trump's finances, what Trump had for breakfast five years ago on the third Tuesday of the month. That's the kind of stuff the Democrats are going to spend all their time on and they're just going to saturate the airwaves with this stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing where you'll, you'll see people who they don't care. I mean, they will be gleeful even when some of these some of these theories that they have and some of this stuff does not pan out because 
it's all about just throwing more stuff at the other side. That it's based on lies or that there's no evidence behind it doesn't matter because it forces us to do what we're going to have to do right now for a moment, which is just to play defense. Here's the uh, here's the, the the story from the the Washington Post today. Ivanka Trump sent hundreds of emails last year to White House aides, cabinet officials, and her assistants using a personal account. Many of them in violation of federal records rules, according to people familiar with a White House examination of her correspondence. White House ethics officials learned of Trump's repeated use of a personal email while reviewing emails gathered last fall by five cabinet agencies to respond to a public records lawsuit. That review revealed that throughout much of 2017, she often discussed or relayed official White House business using a private email account with a domain that she shares with her husband, Jared Kushner. The discovery alarmed some advisors of President Trump who feared that his daughter's practices bore similarities to the personal use, uh, email use of Hillary Clinton, an issue he made a focus of her 2016 campaign. Uh, uh, folks, folks, come on. This is pathetic. All right. This is this is a joke. This was during primarily during the transition. Uh, she was sending emails about logistics and scheduling. You know, hey, guys, do we have this meeting later today? Okay, so let, let's just knock down some of it. Because what they're saying is, oh, it's like Hillary. And people are calling for an investigation. They've got to investigate this. The House has already said you had Democrat members of the House saying that they're going to be looking into this. Like, this is an issue that we need to care about. I mean, these people are delusional. They are nuts. Um, but that's what's that's what's happening here. Um, the the big problem with Hillary's emails. Let's just take a quick a quick trip down memory lane with Hillary. All right. The big problem was that there was classified information in her private email server and in exchanging over unclassified uh, unclassified service. It means it's very easy for especially a foreign intelligence adversary to get access to that very, very sensitive national security information. Every instance of that classified being sent, received, you know, transmitted, held on an unsecure server is in fact a crime. Now, the statute does not get into intent, but, you know, people interpreted it, people being Democrats who were at the top of the DOJ, uh, but you know, people determined that they would not prosecute her for that. But that's a very serious issue. Hillary Clinton having not just one, over a hundred confirmed classified, uh, classified emails in that server, including special access program information, which is very, very sensitive stuff, is reckless beyond words. And even Comey, even Sancta Comey, said that it was extremely careless. There's no question. What she did was egregious, was reckless, was wrong, and was criminal. Okay, classified versus unclassified is a huge distinction here. There is absolutely nothing to suggest that anything in Ivanka's private emails was classified. Now, you could say to me, well, Buck, we don't know unless we investigate. I say, okay, but you could also say that about everything. Everyone's email. Uh, do you have classified email? I don't know. We don't know. Maybe we should. Maybe we should look at it. Maybe we should subpoena your email, right? I mean, they could do this to any any public figure, anyone who's ever had a security clearance. They could just say, well, we won't know unless we check. And they just start pulling uh, pulling their information, pulling their data. Um, 
So on the most important level is classified. Hillary had it. Ivanka doesn't. That puts this in a completely different category of, of discussion. Okay. And then you add in the other stuff. Ivanka didn't have a private server set up in her basement. She used an email, a private email domain for routine logistics and business. And by the way, it's completely legal for her to do that. The only requirement under record-keeping laws is that she would forward those emails to her government address so that they are part of record-keeping. Okay, fine. When you look at what has happened here, she hasn't deleted any emails, unlike Hillary who deleted over, you know, there was, what, over 30,000 deleted? She wasn't deleting them. They're all on the server still. So all the records have been kept. Nothing has been hidden. Nothing has been, uh, no one's used hammers on hard drives as they did with Hillary. No one has used bleach bit to try to digitally wipe all remnants of any information from the server as they did with Hillary. And no one was running for president or rather Ivanka wasn't running for president, running around lying about the use of her server as Hillary did. So those are just off the top of my head, the ways that these are very different, but this is what the left does, right? This is, this is a version of uh, guy number one is a uh, mass murderer. I jaywalked earlier today. We are technically both criminals. That is true. Buck and mass murderer are both technically lawbreakers. One of them is a jaywalker. One of them is, and I jaywalk, I jaywalk like a madman. I mean, I jaywalk, I'm a New Yorker. I make a science of it. I make an art form of my jaywalking. So, you know, yes, technically true, but dishonest on the merits. And claiming that there's any similarity between Ivanka's email situation and Hillary Clinton's as, I mean, this was like front page news today. I mean, this was a big, all morning long, MSNBC, CNN, they're all running these big stories about it. Uh, This is... This is an instance of they are they are creating a narrative and they're chasing it. And now they're going to try it. They will use the media stories that are out there to try to claim that there's greater interest in an official congressional investigation of Ivanka's emails. What they really want is just to turn the heat up on Trump to go after Ivanka and Jared, get them under oath, get them in public hearings. That's coming. And that's why what I'm what I'm why I'm talking about this is, yes, One, it's to smash the lives from the left, but this is showing you their hand very early. The media is going to uh, create the narrative, and then Congress is going to act on it. The Democrat majority house is going to act on it with uh, subpoenas and with hearings on just endless amounts of nonsense. And So you can already start to see this playing out a little bit. And they're going to love the idea, absolutely love the idea of getting Trump family members, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka, Jared Kushner, Trump confidants, you know, Kellyanne Conway, put them under oath as often as they can, see if they can embarrass them, see if they can get them in a perjury trap, just whatever that they can do. It will be a campaign of endless harassment against Trump and all the people around Trump. And... That's unfortunate, you know, unfortunately, enough Americans that believe the Democrat bullcrap to give them control of the House. And now this is what we're heading for. People say, oh, well, now there'll be accountability in government. No, there won't. Not going to be any accountability. There certainly won't be any accountability for the clowns. They're going to waste taxpayer time and dollars on 
what will be witch hunt investigation after witch hunt investigation that are just meant to be the equivalent of MSNBC-style anti-Trump monologues given from the floor of Congress. Ivanka's emails, just like Hillary's emails, that's a lie, but they'll they'll keep going with this. This is also why whenever these people want to lecture me or you on Trump's decorum or you know, maintaining decency in our politics. I just say, these people play dirtier, nastier, and more dishonest than anybody else could ever imagine. So I, I don't really need to hear it from the Schumer, Pelosi, Maxine Waters axis about how we should all be acting and how Trump is so beyond the pale and you know it's so discrediting the way that he tweets and all this stuff. This is what we're heading for. I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to find ways for us to focus in on what really matters on the policy debates and discussions. But man, Democrats are just going to they're just going to turn this into as much of a food fight as they can. And they don't care. How, they don't care how dirty they get because they're already filthy. Ivanka's emails are nothing like Hillary's and nothing about Ivanka is anything like Hillary. So there's that, um, at least about their situations. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We will be right back, team. I'm thrilled to announce my support for this bipartisan bill that will make our community safer and give former inmates a second chance at life after they have served their time. So important. And we're all better off when former inmates can receive and reenter society as law-abiding, productive citizens, and thanks to our booming economy, they now have a chance at more opportunities than they've ever had before. It is true. Our economy is so strong that when people are getting out of jail, they're actually able to find jobs. That's President Trump talking about this this First Step Act and, and this effort at this bipartisan effort at criminal justice reform. Uh, Jared Kushner is very involved in it. Ben I, I highlight this just because, one, it's an example of how conservatives on the right get basically no credit from the other side when they do things that, that everyone kind of agrees are at least well-intentioned. You, you may disagree with this criminal reform bill, by the way. I know some conservatives who do, but at least it is well-intentioned. You want to give people a second chance. You want to be fair to them. Uh, people that you know serve time that are incarcerated are not non-people because they made a mistake, because you know they've, they've had... Uh, difficulty making the right choice at different points in their lives. I mean, look, within reason, right? I'm not talking about like mass murderers here. We're talking usually about people that got involved in drugs. I mean, drugs is the prime, uh, you know, is the prime mover in large-scale incarceration in this country. And so the Trump is trying to do something here, and they get so little credit. There's no good faith from the other side about what Trump will do or what he's willing to do. I think, by the way, if Pelosi gave him a serious infrastructure package, I think he'd, he'd... push Mitch McConnell, and I think he'd push the Republicans in the House uh, as well as in the Senate to try to do something on it. I really do. But this is one of the very rare things. I know it's we got the lame duck here, but, but this is one of the rare rare moments where you might actually see some legislative movement uh, before we get into just you know, intractable political, political uh, warfare. And I also want to note that while we got the other side always posing like the people that are evidence-based and, you know, the, the left, the Democrats, they, they, they've really internalized this notion that they're the one, you know, Trump is the crazy one and they're just trying to save the republic. Trump is the one that's disconnected from reality and, and they're the ones that are kind of standing 
you know, standing on, on the front lines of, of saving the republic or, or our democracy. They prefer that to republic, whatever it is. I saw this YouGov poll today and from the, the economist in YouGov. And I, I just, I had to note this one. 67% of Democrats believe it is definitely true or probably true that Russia tampered with vote tallies in order to get Donald Trump elected. Almost 7 out of 10 Democrats pretty much believe, not that Russia and Trump colluded, oh no, no, that's a whole separate thing, that Russia actually changed votes so that Trump would win the 2016 election. Not a single person, not a single publication, no one has provided one piece of evidence to support that. You could say, as the left loves to all the time, without evidence, this allegation is entirely without evidence. 67% of Democrats think that Putin was able to get into air-gapped voting machines and change the... If Putin could do that, by the way, I mean, you almost want to tip your hat to him. If the Russians are that skilled that nobody noticed Boris, Oleg, and Yuri, like, we must change the votes. Come here, hand me this thing. I will make the vote change. But this is the, this is why I tell you we are in a time of democratic mass delusion. They have convinced themselves, their media has convinced them of things that are just flatly untrue. They think that we're delusional. And I see that I'm like, look, I, I don't like all of Trump's tweets. I don't like everything that Trump does and says. I don't agree with them all the time. And I know that there's some core stuff that he does and says. I just like his policies. I, I'm not I'm not delusional about it. Yeah, I think he tells fibs sometimes to mess with the media or because he feels like it. But it's not important and I don't really care. Democrats actually believe the crazy. They, they don't think that, that it's you know the cost of doing business for their side. They believe things like Russia tampered with vote tallies. Strong majority of Democrats believe that, according to this poll. It's just nuts. Um, Khashoggi, Trump's got a statement on it. The left's going to freak out about it. We've got to get into that, so stay right, stay right there, team. I don't make deals with Saudi Arabia. I don't have money from Saudi Arabia. I have nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. I couldn't care less. And I will tell you, and as most of you know, being president has cost me a fortune, and that's okay with me. I knew that a long time ago. All I do is focus on this country and making great deals for this country. I don't focus on making great deals for myself because I don't care anymore. So Saudi Arabia has nothing to do with me. What does have to do with me is putting America first. Right now, we have oil prices in great shape. I'm not going to destroy the world economy, and I'm not going to destroy the economy for our country by being foolish with Saudi Arabia. I think the statement uh, was pretty obvious what I said. It's about America first. That's Trump in the midst of what is now a, a media frenzy to almost blame the president of the United States for the torture, murder, and dismemberment of a Saudi dissident writer and and kind of pundit uh, for the Washington Post, an opinion columnist. And it's, it's really, this is all a bash Trump operation now because there's nothing, as I've been saying all along, there's nothing Trump can do that would, that would placate his critics on this issue. And the only things that he could do that would get close to placating them would be recklessly stupid for the president of the United States to do under the circumstances. I mean, it would just be 
completely, unacceptably stupid. Uh, you know, what are we really going to do? We're, we're going to try to go to the, are we going to rendition the leader of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and, and take him to the Hague to stand trial? What Under what authority are we going to punish him? Are we going to try to extradite the leader of Saudi Arabia? You know, th- th- this isn't like the leader of Vanuatu or something. I mean, you know, th- they do have real resources, a real military, and a lot of people. So, you know, th- this is this is not going to be a simple, straightforward thing for us to, even if we were that crazy, which we're not. I'm just saying, you know, this 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 is the thing when you talk about when you talk about the options here. None of the options that that people want Trump to pursue are realistic. Okay, so he released a statement today from the White House. I'm going to read. Well, I'll read most of it to you because it'll go pretty quickly. Because it's interesting. He writes, "The world is a very dangerous place!" Exclamation point. The country of Iran, as an example, is responsible for a bloody proxy war against Saudi Arabia in Yemen, trying to destabilize Iraq's fragile attempt at democracy, supporting the terror group Hezbollah in Lebanon, propping up dictator Bashar Assad in Syria, who has killed millions of his own citizens, and much more. Likewise, the Iranians have killed many Americans and other innocent people throughout the Middle East. On the other hand, Saudi Arabia would gladly withdraw from Yemen if the Iranians would agree to leave. They would immediately provide humanitarian assistance. After my heavily negotiated trip to Saudi Arabia last year, the kingdom agreed to spend and invest $450 billion in the United States. This is a record amount of of money. It will create hundreds of thousands of jobs and tremendous economic development. Of the $450 billion, $110 billion will be spent on the purchase of military equipment from Boeing, Lockheed, Raytheon, and many other defense contractors. If we foolishly cancel these contracts, Russia and China would be the enormous beneficiaries, very happy to acquire all of this newfound business. It would be a gift from them to the United States. The crime against Jamal Khashoggi was a terrible one, and one that our country does not condone. Indeed, we have taken strong action against those already known to have participated in the murder. After great independent research, we now know many details of this horrible crime. We've already sanctioned 17 Saudis known to have been involved in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi and the disposal of his body. Um, representatives of Saudi Arabia say that Khashoggi was an enemy of the state and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, but my decision is in no way based on that. This is an unacceptable and horrible crime. King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman vigorously deny any knowledge of the planning or execution. Our intelligence agencies continue to access all information, but it could very well be that Crown Prince had no knowledge of this tragic event. Uh, Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I understand there are members of Congress who, for political reasons or others, want to go in a different direction from me. They are free to do so. Um, I intend to ensure that in a very dangerous world, America is pursuing its national interests and vigorously contesting countries that wish to do us harm. Very simply, it is called America First. So I, I skipped some parts of that. I don't want to go into too much detail on the radio, but I mean, that you get the, you get the gist for sure. That's most of it. So here's what Trump is saying. We've got important business with Saudi Arabia. We need Saudi Arabia as a counterterrorism partner. We need the Saudis to be a buffer against Iranian expansionism and uh, extremism throughout the Middle East. And we aren't about to go after the leader of a country that we've been allied with for a long time without having definitive proof of this. And for all the people saying, oh, the Washington Post reported that the, the intelligence agencies. OK, yeah, the intelligence agencies also thought Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. The intelligence agencies aren't law enforcement organizations. They don't deal with beyond a reasonable doubt. They deal with what we think. What what is our best assessment? 
So there, are, I'm not saying you can you disregard their assessment, but the, the best assessment isn't enough in this case. There's not enough certainty to outweigh U.S. interests in Saudi Arabia and dealing with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, people are, I understand, a lot of you listening are probably like, yeah, Buck, of course. Journalists are in full freakout mode over this, though, because, oh, the, 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 the line is that Trump is soft on dictators and Trump doesn't care. And even Trump is personally making, uh, making money off of this somehow. I mean, this is crazy. Play clip 14. We're not going to give up hundreds of billions of dollars in orders and let Russia, China, and everybody else have them. If you look at Iran, just take a look at Iran, and you look at what they're doing. They are a terrorist nation right now. Although I must tell you, they're a lot better right now than they were when I took office. When I took office, they were heading in a very, very bad direction. And at some point, things very positive, frankly, could happen with Iran, but we also need a counterbalance. And Israel needs help also. If we abandon Saudi Arabia, it would be a terrible mistake. President's just saying it. We're not going to abandon the Saudis. It's not in a, it's not in our interest to abandon the Saudis. We've got big deals to do with them. We've got big uh, strategic interests in the region. And, you know, what, what the terrible thing that happened to one guy is not enough to derail all U.S. interests in this relationship. It's just it's just not. Uh, are, are we really going to, and by the way, really going to what? What do these journalists even want to happen? I know you know this. This is it, From the beginning, this has been an opportunity and an opening for the media to bash Trump, to say that he's too cozy with dictators. Anyway, we got more coming. Stay with me, team. You'd have to ask those people what their motivation is I think uh, of the 17, it's mostly like 14 men who are on that letter. If, in fact, there is any misogyny involved in it, it's their problem, not mine. My main concern was that there is no vision, there is no common value, there is no goal that is really articulated in this letter aside from we need to change. And when you actually look at the signatories, it is not necessarily reflective of the diversity of the party. We, you know, after we have about 16 signatories, uh, 14 of them are male. Uh, there are very few people of color in the caucus. There are very few, there's very few ideological diversity. Yeah. It's not like there are progressives that are signing on. It's not like you have a broad based coalition. Uh, so I, I find it, um, you know, I, I don't I'm not totally bought into the concept. So there you have the kind of two standard bearers within the Democratic Congress right now or, you know, the soon to be Democrat majority uh, House of Representatives. You've got Nancy Pelosi and uh, on the one end who represents the the ultimate establishment inside D.C. player. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is the swamp personified. And then you've got Ocasio-Cortez who is the not especially well-read, but somewhat uh, telegenic and charismatic uh, progressive from Queens, who's the youngest, I think, the youngest member of Congress of all time, and, and who just, just you know, just wants, like, free stuff, like, for everyone, man. I mean, just go for it. So that, that, there's, there's a lot of that going on now, too. There's this sort of new progressive surge into the Congress. But here's what I think is going to happen. They're all going to fall in line behind Pelosi. This talk of a Pelosi... An anti-Pelosi political insurgency within the Democrats, it's just not going to happen. 
because ultimately Democrats are very much unified on what on what matters to them, which is enlarging the government, control of people's lives, spending the taxpayers money and dictating as much of your life as they can. That's it. That's that's what they really want to do. Collectivism and statism. Those are the twin pillars of the modern Democratic Party. Sure, we can slice the onion a little thinner into identity politics, transgender rights, uh, abortion on demand. I mean, there, there's all there's all those things, too. But at a at a macro 30,000 foot philosophical level, Democrats are about collectivism and statism, big, powerful government and treat people like groups and have an elite, which would obviously be the Democrat Congress and the media and others, an elite that determines what the collective good is, and that must be pursued at the expense of individual rights and individual property and, and all the rest of it, right? That's, that's a summary view of, of what they're trying to do, they're trying to accomplish. You know, they always act like they've got this big tent and big differences. You I mean, the, the, the big difference for the Democrats is, do they go for free college or just college that like the taxpayers are totally paying for? I mean, you know, it's really all the same stuff from them. You really don't hear where's the area of great ideological friction within for the Democrats. It's always just a question of how quickly they can get to the same place, which is socialism. I mean, the Democratic Party now is, a, is a, the American Socialist Party. They won't say that. It was really interesting. Actually, I had a, a a progressive activist on rising and I said, do you think the Democrats are going to embrace because he's he's he had a war in. Uh, something like Warren Warren Rock's pin on, like Elizabeth Warren is awesome. Yeah, I know. So there's some people who still think Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's going to run for something. And I said, do you think that they'll just embrace the the uh, terminology? Never mind the idea. They've already embraced the ideology, but will they embrace the terminology of democratic socialism? Will the Dems go full democrat socialist in 2020? And he said, oh, no, 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 of course not. Why not? Bernie Sanders says it. Ocasio-Cortez says it. I mean, these are the leading the leading figures in the Democratic Party now. I mean, Nancy Pelosi doesn't say it quite yet, but, you know, it's also hard for somebody who's worth $50 million to act like she's really all that concerned with socialism, right? I mean, you know, it, or, or rather, lots of rich people are concerned with socialism, but they always end up falling into very hypocritical positions on that. Oh, like Bill de Blasio, by the way. Well, that was a perfect transition. Here's uh, what Bill de Blasio said recently. So Bill de Blasio, you got to remember, he's a guy, hey, Billy de Blasio, also known as Warren Wilhelm. That was his name. He changed his name as an adult. Uh, but, but de Blasio um, recently said the following. I just want to read this to you because this really goes to the center of the idiocy and insanity of the left that believes we're heading toward a progressive utopia in this country. Okay, this is this is what Bill de Blasio said. Quote, what's been hardest is the way our legal system is structured to favor private property. I think people all over this city of every background would like to have the city government be able to determine which building goes where, how high it will be, who gets to live in it, what the rent will be. I think there's a socialistic impulse, which I hear every day in every kind of community, that they would like things to be planned in accordance with their need. Central planning. That's what he's talking about. And I would, too. 
Unfortunately, what stands in the way of that is hundreds of years of history that have elevated property rights and wealth to the point that that's the reality that calls the tune on a lot of development. I'll give you an example. I was down one day on Varick Street close to Canal, and there's a big sign in front of a condo saying units start at $2 million. And that just drives people stark raving mad in this city because that kind of development is not for everyday people. It's almost like it's being flaunted. Look, if I had my druthers, the city government would determine every single plot of land, how development would proceed, and there would be very stringent requirements around income levels and rents. There, that's a world I'd love to see, and I think we ha- I think what we have, in this city at least, are people who would love to have the New Deal back on one level. They'd love to have a very, very powerful government, including a federal government that's directly involved in addressing their day-to-day reality. It's very reachable right now. And it leaves this friction and this anger, end quote. Now, I read that whole thing to you because that's essentially de Blasio's socialist manifesto. Here we have the mayor of the largest city in the United States saying that the the local government should determine what gets built, what it looks like, how big it is, who gets to live there, what they pay. That's actually socialism. That's not even democratic socialism. That's just socialism. He's saying this openly. This guy was very tight with the Clintons, by the way. I mean, this this is a very connected figure. Some people still think one day he might run for president, but, I mean, his complete lack of charm and charisma is probably an issue. That didn't stop Hillary. Hillary tried it anyway. Um, But he's going for for straight-up socialism here. He really is. And here's the really fun part about it. He's talking about how, oh, they're flaunting these new condominiums. You know what Bill de Blasio's home is estimated to be worth in Brooklyn? About $2 million. So you got a guy who lives in a mansion paid for by the taxpayers, who owns privately a $2 million home, who is going out there lecturing the people of New York City and the country as well, in a sense, on how government should be able to determine what is built, where it is built, who gets to live there, what they pay, what it costs, what the landlords can charge, And we're supposed to take him seriously. It is hard to tell if it is ignorance of economics or just pure cynicism and demagoguery that pushes this. But socialism is ascendant within the Democratic Party. Make no mistake about it. And whether they put a kind of traditional Democrat Pelosi face on it or they let Ocasio-Cortez and this, this new crop of leftists run wild in the Congress, the Democratic Party is being overtaken by the socialist impulse. It is happening right now in this country. I am telling you it is going on before our very eyes, and we need to fight against this. We need to push back. We need to win this argument. Speaking of arguments, the one over immigration is just going to get more and more tense because there's no legislation that's going to fix any of this now. So now it's just going to be a question of executive branch, courts, media, public opinion. There will be no immigration legislation anytime soon, and we got big problems on the border. That's coming up. You've probably heard me talk about Snippy.com in the past. Well, thousands of my listeners have joined Snippy.com, and they're expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. So if you've looked at Snippy.com in the past and left, you really need to look again. Snippy's an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. 
Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. You know, I just posted earlier today, I want to get some thoughts from folks on Thanksgiving, and I know that whatever I'm putting up on Snippy and whatever others are posting there, that's what they really want to say. There's no moderation from people that are administrators, none of that stuff. Snippy is a place where everyone can express their thoughts and share their opinions. It is totally free to join, folks, open to everyone. So join us at snippy.com. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning, no suppression of conservatism. And with an updated user interface and exciting new features, it's also available in the Apple App Store and available for Android. Snippy, your new alternative social media. Should this caravan have been stopped at the Guatemala border? Of course. I agree with that 100%. It should have. Your country have to be beware of these people because they are people, they are bad people. Because they don't belong here, they're just migrants, but it's like the same, in the same case, it's like when Mexican migrants going to the U.S., they're undocumented. You know of incidences uh, here in Tijuana and in other cities that some of these people that are coming into these, with these caravans are committing crimes. This is not about racism. We don't dislike a certain group of people because they're from a country, one country or another. We uh, are here because our government has not uh, taken control of these, what we call invasion. So the caravan has in part arrived in Tijuana. Let's not forget that in the immediate aftermath of the election, we were being told that Trump was fear-mongering over the caravan. They'd never get there. Oh, they're a thousand miles away. A thousand miles away. That was the big that was the big talking point. Oh, now they're there. You mean buses and trains exist in, in Mexico? Oh, what a shock. So here we are with people gathering at the border, this caravan gathering at the border, um, trying to, you know, find a way to enter the enter the United States en masse right, in a huge group, and you have people who are protesting them in, in Tijuana saying that they don't, they are not wanted here. They're using much of the same rhetoric that we have heard from conservatives in this country. And the libs, you can tell, don't really know how to handle this because they're just so used to saying, you're racist, stop being racist that they're not used to having to make an argument about this or to deal with the facts of the case as they are actually presented. So, you know, that's what they're they're not dealing with that component of it. Uh, They they don't know really what to say. Uh, Here's a Tijuana. I mean, we've got some great audio here of these protesters in in Tijuana. Can I say, I mean, did I say Tijuana? I'm just so used to saying it that way. I know it's Tijuana, but I want to say Tijuana. Uh, I want to Americanize it. But the, the protesters who are saying that explicitly, I mean, this guy is trans, being translated for you by uh, someone from the Spanish, but that Trump was right. Play clip two. Donald Trump es una invasión. Lo que dijo Donald Trump es verdad. Es una invasión. Well, I know Donald Trump and I know verdad, which is true or right. Uh, so Donald Trump was right. This was an invasion. What Trump said was true. This is an invasion. So the Mexican people of Tijuana are not pleased, at least some of them. I know people say, oh, no. Well, let's think about this for a second, folks. Who would want a mass of thousands of people that need to be fed, need to be uh, using, you know, restroom facilities, need to be 
kept clean and need to be kept orderly and safe and all this other stuff. Would you want that just showing up in your neighborhood? Why would anyone want this? I mean, I, I live here in the swamp in D.C. If a few thousand people descended upon you know my area of the swamp and were living in the street, I wouldn't want that. Does that make me a bad person? Does that make me racist? I don't even care what race they are, right? I mean, I just I just wouldn't want anybody to be doing that. It's not safe. It's not sanitary. And it's not orderly. And, you know, the, the human mind, especially when it comes to your neighborhood and where you live, the human mind tends to crave a certain degree of organization. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we form ourselves into states and, and have, uh, have governments. Uh, but people are finally starting to look at this and say, well, hold on a second. What does it mean if, you know, the Mexican people are allowed to be opposed to Honduran caravans coming into into some parts of Mexico? Um, are the American people allowed to take a similar position? I mean, here's the, uh, the, the mayor of Tijuana. Again, this is going to be in Spanish, but I've got the translation here for you. This is the mayor of, of Tijuana. Play three. Ninguna ciudad en el mundo está preparada para recibir esta, si se me permite, esta avalancha, ¿no? Este tsunami. Avalanche and tsunami you may have caught there. So this is the mayor of Tijuana says in Spanish, no city in the world is in favor of uh, of this, is prepared to deal with this. If I may, it's an avalanche, it's a tsunami. Um, oh, sorry, no city in the world is prepared to deal with this. It's an avalanche, it's a tsunami. Yeah, that's right. There are there are costs associated with dealing with this caravan. There there's there are difficulties. There are hardships that people will have to endure because of this caravan, and and they don't have to want it. We are so used to being shut down in this country on any discussion involving immigration. By we're just we're just beaten down with rhetoric about how we're all racist. That that's what it is. Anybody doesn't matter what your skin color is. Doesn't matter ethnicity. If you don't want masses of illegal immigrants and that's they keep saying oh they're asylum seekers the asylum seeking is the scam to get them in the country you know if if i if a thousand people were about to marry americans from across the border that they had never met okay i wouldn't sit here and allow people to refer to them as green card holders i would say they're engaged in marriage fraud because that's what they are trying to do these are overwhelmingly fraudulent claims of asylum that are, and everybody knows it. And everybody knows it. And the caravan is a real problem. The caravan's a real issue. And, and you know, last week we had, oh, why isn't Fox News? I mean, you know, all these other news outlets were trashing conservatives, trashing conservative media because they said that this was all ginned up just for the election. Meanwhile, uh, now we're actually looking at the problem and what do the Democrats offer? If this caravan of 2000 can come in and do this, why can't others? If this caravan can get into the country, what about caravans from Brazil, from Venezuela, from Nicaragua? Under what guise can we stop anyone who has a very simple series of lines to deliver in the first lines of immigration enforcement when they, when they are essentially being processed by uh, Border Patrol and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they say, I've got credible fear. Gangs want to hurt me. I'm, I'm fleeing violence. Anybody can say that. Anybody can say that. And then what you realize is, oh, hold on a second. You, you mean to tell me that, uh, you mean to tell me that there's, 
no way to stop these people from coming into America. That 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 seems like a problem for some folks. That that seems like a a scam. And Democrats are in on the scam. And this is what they do with illegal immigration. Oh, by the way, we got a guy. Here's just another guy, a Mexican living in Tijuana who uh, is talking about this caravan. Here's what he says. Play four. I'm not really um, in favor of them coming the way they did. You know, to me, it feels like um, they invaded and uh, that was not the correct way. But I know all of them are not like that. Invaded, he says. Oh, my gosh. So that Mexican is so racist against Hondurans. How could he? I mean, I mean, Mexicans being racist against Hondurans. I mean, at what point at what point do we realize this is this is just gone off into crazy town. Uh, But Democrats do not. They do not have a solution on this. They do not have an answer on this. Their whole thing is just like with socialism. The biggest thing socialism has going forward is that it sounds good. The biggest problem is that it doesn't work. Apply that logic to Democrats and immigration. The best thing about Democrats and immigration is they sound like they're nice and caring. The problem is they don't care. They're not being nice. And they're creating problems for this country and for our rule of law and our sovereignty. And they, you know, none of that even factors into their thinking at all. I find this, uh, you know, we're going to have to we're going to continue to follow this story. I mean, I find this very troubling. I'm very annoyed by it. And. I want more action from Republicans on this when they have to do a better job of making the case. Trump's the only one I see out there. Where are the rest of the Republicans? Why aren't they sounding the alarm about this massive asylum scam? Asylum policy has been put on hold. Well, you go to the Ninth Circuit and it's a disgrace and I'm going to put in a major complaint because you cannot win if you're us a case in the Ninth Circuit. And I think it's a disgrace. When people file, every case gets filed in the Ninth Circuit because they know that's not law. That's not what this country stands for. Every case that gets filed in the Ninth Circuit, we get beaten. And then we end up having to go to the Supreme Court like the travel ban and we won. This was an Obama judge. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen like this anymore. Everybody that wants to sue the United States, they file their case in almost. They file their case in the Ninth Circuit, and it means an automatic loss. No matter what you do, no matter how good your case is, and the Ninth Circuit is really something we have to take a look at. Trump is completely correct here on the Ninth Ninth Circuit. And, you know, you'll notice that the libs and the activist judges on the Ninth Circuit are not in the least bit chastened by the fact that they've already been slapped down on a major issue dealing with immigration and presidential authority, in this case, the travel ban. Trump was right, according to the Supreme Court, on the travel ban. So these these judges are just hashtag resistance. That's what's really going on. These are Obama appointees who think that their judgment of what the law should be is more important than what the law says. So let me just give you, I mean, here's some of the background on this one from the New York Times. Uh, President Trump signed a proclamation on November 9th that banned immigrants from applying for asylum if they failed to make the request at a legal checkpoint. Only those who entered the country through a port of entry would be eligible, he said, invoking national security powers to protect the integrity of the United States borders. Within days, the administration submitted a rule to the Federal Register, letting it go into effect immediately and without the customary period for public comment. 
but the rule over overhauled longstanding asylum laws that people fleeing persecution can seek safety in the United States. Advocacy groups, i.e. left-wing, uh, left-wing PACs, which is what the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU have become, sue the administration, and the judge put in this uh, temporary restraining order. One, Remember, all it takes is one federal judge to now stop the president of the United States from exercising his constitutional authority as commander-in-chief. That's, that's the country we're living in now. They tell us that there's tyranny. Meanwhile, you get any federal judge anywhere in the country can say, nope, Trump can't do that, and Trump has to go, okay, uh, you know, now we got to go to court, got to go through the little process. This is just stalling. This is bad faith law from the left, which is when these judges are leftists. That's what this is. Okay, understand also what the Trump administration has said here and what the left is therefore saying. All Trump has said is you cannot cross into the country illegally and then say, oh, yeah, I want asylum. So because what really that means is that now you'll have people that get near the border and they just wait until they think there's an opening and then they can cross into the country and then they're they're home free. And if they get caught, instead of having to worry about being immediately turned around and deported, they just claim asylum. So it's like a get out of jail free card. And what Trump has said is in order to protect our national sovereignty at the border, he will not allow. I mean, as exec- executive policy will no longer allow people to claim what they call defensive asylum, meaning that once you're already caught, you say, well, I, I want to claim asylum now. Trump is saying, no, sorry, that that doesn't work. That's not acceptable. Uh, and when you think about it, what the left is therefore telling you is that they want people to be able to come into the country however they want and abuse the system and claim asylum for cases that they are not going to win. I mean, over 80 percent of these asylee uh, of these would be or these requesting these individuals requesting asylum over 80 percent are going to be rejected. OK, they're going to be rejected. And this is where the Democrats are being so dishonest, because at that point, once they're rejected, they're in the country illegally. So these are all soon to be. These are illegals in waiting, folks. That's what we're talking about. Over 80 percent of them by the numbers of what we've seen in these recent migrant waves. This is why I when I say that the the Democrat Party has turned into a party that turns a blind eye to illegal immigration to a party that is openly advocating for legal immigration, I'm not exaggerating. They want to make it as easy as possible to be in this country illegally and to enter this country illegally, and they will pervert the law. They will turn the law upside down in order to get there. Also, as I've been saying, this this notion that these, uh, these judges are in a position to just overrule on a temporary on a temporary basis, but overall executive authority. I mean, this is just it's just nonsense. It, it just goes to show you that there is such an anti-Trump strain in this country right now that you have judges who don't have the respect for the law or for the powers that they hold to understand that Trump, as the commander in chief and under a duly passed congressional statute, has the authority to exempt illegal aliens from entering the country for any reason that he deems in the national interest. That is the law that the travel ban was upheld under in part. That law certainly applies here. So if Trump says, you know, we're at we're at war with Iran or, you know, we're at war with any country, 
Therefore, illegal aliens, or not illegal aliens, just aliens from Iran, non-citizen, non-residents from Iran cannot enter the United States. He has the constitutional authority to do that. This also brings us to how the left really does seem to believe that foreigners have constitutional rights, uh, full constitutional rights as well. Uh, and and just, just go down the line. Not, not only do they think that foreigners should be able to essentially sue to come into the United States against the express wishes of the executive branch through the president, but they, if they had their way, I think they would let foreigners vote in our elections too. There's no moral principled outrage from the left over illegal aliens voting in our elections. They just say it doesn't happen, but they're not saying if it did happen, it's like really bad. They wish it could happen. But I mean, and this, this is, here's a perfect example of, of the, of the crap that we have to deal with. Senior supervising attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center, Melissa Crow says, quote, this is a critical step in fighting back against President Trump's war on asylum seekers. End quote. That's just idiocy. These are not legitimate asylum seekers. These are people who are abusing asylum law, getting ahead of other people who are really who are really trying to flee certain death in their countries, being targeted by their own governments. These are economic migrants. These are people who want to be in America. We've got a big, cozy welfare state going to this country, folks. It's a good time to be in America. If you got no skills and don't speak English, it's not that hard to be here now. It's easier than it's been in a long time. So th- that's what we're talking about. I mean, uh, under this woman from the Southern Poverty Law Center's de- you know, description or under her conception of asylum, the entire country of Honduras qualifies for asylum. All of it. So do we have to merge with Honduras now? And if Honduras qualifies, why doesn't Mexico? Mexico's got a tremendous violence problem, a lot of drugs, a lot of corruption. So why does it, you know... Where do we draw the line here? And the answer is the left draws the line the moment that it's no longer in their political interests. And the greater the number of uh, impoverished, third world, non-English speaking immigrants the left can pile into the United States, in their mind, the better. It just means that they have a greater chance of creating a one-party state in this country, which is the ultimate goal. Which is why I'm, I'm telling you right now, 2020... It's all about amnesty. If they can get the presidency and control the Senate, the first thing they're going to try to do is ram through an amnesty. And that is ballgame for conservatism. That is the end for those of us who believe in limited government, rule of law, and constitutionalism. We will be a different country then. So keep that in mind. I acknowledge there's a stock market correction, and I don't like to see anybody lose any money all any time, but these things happen, they come and go. I'm just saying the psychology in stocks has gone down a bit. The economy is roaring. So Larry Kudlow is saying, look, don't don't everybody panic. Yeah, the 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 stock market. And I, I can tell you this. I mean, if you've basically been looking at, at the way this the stock market's done since the beginning of the year, if you've been invested since the beginning of the year, all of your gains, if you've been really just in the S&P and sort of the you know, if you've been in some big mutual funds, the, the gains are, are gone. Uh, and if you've invested in the main drivers of stock market growth in recent years in terms of what they call the FANG stocks, which are Facebook, Apple, uh, Netflix, and Google, if you've been heavily invested in that, uh, you've gotten you've gotten your shirt handed to you. I mean, it's been it's been rough in the last month. 
Now, you could say, Buck, I don't really care about the stock market. This isn't a financial show. And I said, you know, I know I understand that. But people look at this and they say, maybe, maybe this is a recession uh, that's about to happen here. And there's, there's concerns. There's concerns over that. Here's my problem is that I think that the market, we've been in a 10-year bull market, and there's a lot of reason to believe that a, a cyclical recession is going to happen in the next year or two. And just as we saw with the way the Democrats got incredibly lucky with Obama coming on the scene right when you had the end of eight years of Republican administration and a, a pretty rough recession uh, hit right around the time that you're trying to see John McCain take on Barack Obama, right? I mean, th- that was very good timing for a pretty radical left-wing president to come on the scene and talk about, you know, the redistribution of wealth and paying your fair share and all that stuff. Because people get scared and they want the, they want to believe the government's there for them. The government's going to help them. The government is the backstop of all this stuff. And right now there's a little bit of an increase in fear. And, and I worry that the Trump administration is heading in for something of a perfect storm here where you're going to have the House of Representatives is just going to turn into a Democrat oppo machine. I mean, they're going to just be doing all these, just like the Ivanka email stuff. They're going to reach, they're going to stretch, they're going to come up with all kinds of nonsense, whatever they can and whatever they have to, to try and justify their insane positions. But they're in... Enough. They have enough power and enough authority and certainly enough amplification from the media that it is likely that they'll be able to get, you know, the message out there and get some traction on this. And they're going to impeach the president. Now, impeaching the president when the economy is roaring and things are going really well in the country overall, certainly economically, impeaching the president seems like a petty uh, partisan hatchet job you know it, it just seems now it doesn't mean democrats won't do it it just means that i don't think that that helps them going into 2020 in those critical states that they'll need to win if they're going to beat trump right they you know, pennsylvania michigan wisconsin ohio florida you know the states so you know if if that's what it's all going to come down to you know then we need to understand that a an economy that's on the downswing even if it's not really trump's fault is going to Add to the woes of this administration. And you're going to see, I, I do believe you're going to see a moment here where the Democrats are going to have an opening to really push for you know, democratic socialism, also known as socialism. I mean, I think they're really going to push for that. They're going to say this whole Medicare for all thing is going to gain more traction. And they'll just lie to people and tell them, oh, yeah, the big lie that I'm hearing on that all the time on Medicare for all is, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, you'll have to pay more in taxes, but you'll say you'll get more money back in savings on your health care. That's that's a lie. This is the magic cake that feeds everybody that never runs out and that won't make you fat no matter how much of it you eat. You know, it's just not true. And government saving you money is, ju- you know, through your health care after taking more money from you in the form of taxes. That's just not true. And uh, I, I, I wish I wish we could get people to really un- understand that. But the direction of the economy is really going to affect a lot of the political conversation. And I think that there's my concern all along has been Trump with a booming economy and a four percent, give or take, unemployment rate 
is unstoppable, unstoppable by, by the left. Uh, Trump with you know the stock market taking a 30% dip from the high and people's 401ks getting crushed. Pension, by the way, all the pension funds, for those of you that are like, ah, I don't care about 401ks, wherever you live across the country, the pension fund where you are is most likely invested and the long-term pension outlays all take into account that they got to make money by investing it, right? So to pay the pensions in, in uh, you know, Punxsutawney for the firefighters, they've, I don't know why Punxsutawney came to mind, but, you know, they've got to invest the pension money and have it compound at a certain expected growth rate. Otherwise, you know, they're going to have to raise taxes on people because they're not going to have the money. They're going to have pension shortfalls. So don't think that when, when I talk about the market, the market affects a lot more than just, oh, like, I'm, oh, how's my portfolio doing? You know, let me just shine my monocle right now and put on my top hat. Please, I wish, by the way. Uh, that sounds like fun. Um, not the monocle and the top hat, but having that kind of money. So, but, but that's where Trump, I think, becomes much more vulnerable. And also, on, look, this China issue. The Chinese stock market's down about 20% this year. China's stock market's getting roughed up. And Trump has, there's no two ways about it. Trump has retaliated. I mean, people keep saying he's picked the, he picked the fight and started a trade war with China, but he's really just responding to an ongoing Chinese trade war. But he is responding to it, and, and the tensions are getting ratcheted up here as a result. Kudlow also spoke about this. Play clip 12. It's got to include uh, IP theft. It's got to include changes in ownership. It's got to stop the forced transfer of technology. It's got to go to zero tariffs and zero non-tariff barriers. It's got to have enforceability. It's got to have strict timetables. It has to have, frankly, more than we've seen uh, so far. He said, look, we're not backing down with China. If China is willing to play ball like a responsible actor here, if the, if the Chinese government will stop the shenanigans and start acting like a, a, a normal, advanced, developed rule of law country in terms of its trade relations, well, then, you know, we can come to some kind of an agreement. Now, I, I, I've said this all along because, you know, the, the conventional wisdom on trade has been you know, we're, we're free trade, even though that's really more of a talking point than it is a, a, a concept you can implement. But, you know, we're all about free trade. But if China is going to cheat, then we need to exact or extract some uh, punishment for their predatory trade practices. And as he mentioned, inter inter uh, intellectual property theft, there's more than just, you know, them having taxes on imports, right? There's more than just tariffs to discuss here. Uh, there's a lot of other activity they're engaged in, but this is only good if we win, right? This is only good if it works out. If this just results in continued back and forth and uh, you know economic dislocations and perhaps even global economic stagnation as a result of the two largest economies in the world getting into some kind of a, you know, a, a contest of wills here, that's not good. So I've been willing to give the Trump administration the leeway to get this done. They still might. They'll probably, I'm sure if I could talk to Kudlow, and we interviewed him a few weeks ago at the Hill, but I, I wasn't there for it. But next time I get a chance to talk to Kudlow, you know, I'm sure he would say that it's early, you know, and that this is going to take, it's a process. But, you know, the longer it takes, the more pain that we suffer through it, the less it would be a victory, right? So we got to see what ends up happening here with China. But the economy 
is key. If Trump is going to win in 2020, we have to keep this economy going strong. And the left knows that. And so they're willing to tank it if they have to. Take off the shelf existing technologies. We could reduce carbon emissions by, let's say, 30 percent. Without any, you know, it's, it's not like we'd all have to go back to caves and, you know, live off, you know, fire. Um, uh, we could have electricity and smartphones and uh, all that stuff, um, which would buy us probably another 20, 30 years for that technological breakthrough that's necessary. The reason we don't do it is because we are still confused, blind, <laughs> shrouded with hate, anger, racism, mommy issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> you know, we, 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 are, we are fraught with stuff. Obama is not nearly as impressive on the issues as the media pretended he was for many, many years. Uh, Obama is uh, somebody who has always been held up as having a much greater grasp of the complexities of, of politics than, than he does, or at least the complexities of policy. And that's a perfect example. You know, we have off-the-shelf technology that would reduce carbon emissions by 30%, and the only reason we don't do it is mommy issues, racism, I can't even remember all the stuff that he's, it was just like this long, this long uh, string of, of stupid non sequiturs. Uh, and and I, I just, I can't tell you with, well, first of all, that Obama's still out there giving all these speeches and stuff. You know, he's president for eight years. Maybe, maybe just like do some good charity work, you know? Maybe we, we don't have to hear the, the most recent president acting as a, partisan surrogate for the party in opposition to the current president, right? Maybe that would be nice, like what George W. Bush did, for example. I know it's not required. I'm just saying it would be nice. It would be more uh, respectful and, and gentlemanly, I think. But I know this is not a time for gentlemanliness in politics, I suppose, at least not in the left's view and honestly not in the right's either. It's pretty much a brawl. But he, so here Obama makes this comment and you know, people are laughing and oh, it's so funny. Uh, and all the things that he says there, and this, this is just one example of an Obamaism, but it sounds kind of wise and witty and, oh, Obama, just tell us more. It's just garbage. He doesn't know what the heck he's talking about, which for a guy who was president for eight years, it's pretty remarkable. But the reason that we don't use those off-the-shelf technologies is that they're really expensive. The reason that we don't use renewable at the rates that the left wants us to, that the green extremes believe we should, is because they are highly, highly inefficient still. And with the increasing availability of uh, fossil fuels and the better technology for getting at the fossil fuels, as well as the more efficient technology for using it, things like liquefied natural gas, uh, obviously fracking uh, as part of the extraction process, the the idea that we're all of a sudden supposed to what rely on wind, rely on solar. Uh, there's a there. The, this has been you know solar's been the next big thing for the last forty years, and there's a reason for that. Uh, but you know the the notion that that Obama puts forward there, I just think that's that this is my of all the things from the Obama era that he would do on a regular basis. 
the way that he would go after, he would create these straw men on the right and then just rip them apart as though he was doing something really smart and really brave. Um, that really bothered me. He never contends with the argument of the other side. My argument against his whole, I mean, never mind getting into the whole climate change as a threat to us thing, which is just, that's just irrational. It's irrational. It's not a threat to us. We're all going to be fine. Okay. People have gotten themselves all scared and they think that he's talking about other people being scared and afraid and mommy issues. But if there was a technology out there that was cheaper and better and more efficient for us to use when it came to energy, doesn't he think that we'd be using it? I mean, this is the guy you'll remember on tape before he ran for president said, you know, under my plan, electricity would skyrocket in price. He doesn't seem to understand that energy is the lifeblood of a modern economy and that when you put unnecessary pressures, upward pressures on the price of energy, you're hurting everything. You're making poor people pay more for their food. You're paying poor people paying more for their heat. Everybody's paying more for stuff. It's just not a good idea. But instead of recognizing and dealing with the truth here and the truth being that there are very clear reasons why we have not gone to renewables the way the left wants us to. And by the way, they've thrown so much in the way of subsidies. And you guys remember Solyndra, that giant Obama-era boondoggle, hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer guarantees to a solar company that was, get ready for it, losing money on every transaction it did. But it was going to what? Make it up on volume? That's like the old joke. We're losing money, but we're going to make it up on volume. You know, we lose money on every unit, but the more we sell, the oh, the more the more money you lose, right? Solyndra was selling at a loss, and that's how you can lose hundreds of millions of dollars running an, an energy company in whatever it was, 2011. And I just think it's interesting that you know they 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 can actually deal with the argument from our side, which is, by the way, we are decarbonizing as a globe and as a society. If you look at the history of energy, I mean, if, if one actually took the time, as I have, to read about the history of fossil fuel exploration and, and how energy has powered economies in the modern era, what you find out is that we've gone from highly carbon-intensive, highly inefficient sources of fuel, burning wood, burning whale fat, you know, you, know, you, you go through, you know, kerosene and, and, and then coal, and then gas, and now we're at liquefied natural gas. I mean, we're getting cleaner as we, or just natural gas in general, uh, cleaner as we go along in terms of emissions and more efficiency and greater abundancy. And this is something that should be celebrated. But instead, you know, you get Obama making a snarky comment, and he's just he's just parading ignorance on this. It's just not true that there is feasible technology to drop global carbon emissions by 30% that is cost effective that we could do and that would buy us 40 years of you know leeway for other technologies to deal with climate change which isn't even a threat we have to deal with i you know i don't know i want to come back in another life and have everybody treat me like i'm a genius when i don't know what i'm talking about that that would be that would be really cool you know and, and no one ever is allowed to tell you otherwise or else they're going to be shouted down and everyone's going to say they're a terrible person that would be nice that means, I mean, Obama had that for eight years. You just say stuff, tell stuff that wasn't true, say stuff that's just inaccurate, you know, share opinions as though they're fact. And it was getting backstopped by the media all the time. And I sit here, I just say to myself, and how do I get that gig where 
you're hailed as a genius when in reality, a lot of your ideas are either mediocre or subpar. But, you know, he does he does sound convincing, I guess, to Libs. And so that's that's really all it takes sometimes. Do you need expert delivery of high quality screening solutions for employers, property managers and financial companies? Well, Global Verification Network is the answer that you're looking for, my friends. Global Verification is a veteran owned small business dedicated to the expert delivery of high quality screening services to the employment, tenant screening and financial services sectors. Look, I know the CEN of Global Verification Network. He's a great guy. He's got a fantastic team. And this is a veteran owned and operated company. So if you want to support veteran small business and if you want to make sure that the people that you're hiring or that you're renting a property out to are who they say they are and are all squared away. Check their backgrounds thoroughly. Make sure you get through the process quickly and efficiently. You need Global Verification Network. Go check it out for yourself. Go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com or call 855-960-5318. What's it like to be on the front lines of the battle against the Islamic State? What were the, the sights and sounds and uh, how, how was it to be there trying to assist the Iraqis in taking back uh, their country after the rise of ISIS? We have an author who can tell us all about this. Ephraim Matos is with us now. He is the author of City of Death, Humanitarian Warriors in the Battle of Mosul, which you can get now on. Uh, it's out in bookstores as well. He's a former Navy SEAL. Ephraim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, so, man, tell tell me, you, you come out of the Navy, you come out of the Navy SEALs, and you decide that you're going to join a very, very special unit fighting the Islamic State in northwestern Iraq. What happened here? How'd you do this? Well, so actually, uh, so I left the, the Navy early last year, and my 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 thought was not necessarily to do the whole combat thing. That wasn't that wasn't my intention. Uh, my intention was to do humanitarian work. And the guys that I joined up with, I volunteered with, were were the uh, Free Burma Rangers, and they were working in northern Iraq doing humanitarian stuff. Um, and doing uh, medical things as well. They were armed, they were working with the Iraqi army, and I just figured it was a good place for me as a former SEAL to go and help and do some good in this world. And during that, during that time, the Iraqi army unit that we were attached to, uh, who we would, we would feed the civilians and, and help the civilians and treat, treat the wounded every time they cleared a, a new village or something like that, um, Th that same unit was ordered to attack West Mosul. And so what, what went from a humanitarian mission, you know, 95% of the time went to a full-on, you know, we basically transitioned into being full-on um, combat medics for, for uh, the assault into Mosul. And, I mean, that was some of the, the toughest fighting of the entire, certainly on the Iraqi side of the, of the equation, of the entire fight mm -hmm. against the Islamic State. I mean, what was it like being being with those uh, near those Iraqi units and and being right there beside them as they're going house to house, door to door? I mean, what tell us about that? What I assume was a hellscape. I've seen some video, by the way, of you, uh, Ephraim, when you're actually out there on the battlefield. I mean, actually, there's a video of you online where you actually got wounded. So I mean, you were right there in the action. What was it like to see yeah. all this? Well, I, I'll tell you what, man. It was it was really it, it was kind of surreal, right? So I talk about it in the book City of Death, where 
Um, you know, I, I, I leave the SEALs, right? This, this elite unit were one of the top, you know, uh, com- you know, close quarter combat units in the world. Um, you know, incredibly elite, tight knit. We have everything is, you know, we, we have standard tactics, all this stuff, great equipment. And I go from that to just total chaos in the battlefield, right? So uh, what, what's it like working with the Iraqis? They, they fight a war war is very different than we do. Their soldiers are 10, are 10 days on, 10 days off. Uh, none of them really have body armor on. Um, they only fight after, you know, their morning tea, and then they usually break for dinner, and then that's it. You know, it's so they don't do any night fighting. It, it was a very, very strange thing. They're, in comparison to the like, U.S. forces, they're very disorganized and, and all that. So it was very chaotic. It was extremely chaotic, if you want to know what it was like. Um, but I will also say this, though, too, about the individual Iraqi soldiers, and this isn't necessarily an endorsement of the Iraqi government, but the, the individual Iraqi soldiers were incredibly brave. I was, I was actually very surprised to see that these guys were, 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 were laying down their lives to rescue um, you know, Sunni Muslims, and most of the guys in the, in, in the, that we were working with were Shia. And they were, they were incredibly kind to the civilians. They were even kind to their uh, ISIS captors. I never saw any. We, we, we saw lots of ISIS prisoners, but I never saw any um, mistreatment of those guys. And it was it was quite an interesting experience living and working directly with the Iraqis, holding security with them at night, holding the line with them when ISIS counterattacks. Um, and I talk about all that stuff in the book, the City of Death. And they're just really, really, uh, really great human beings, honestly. And, I, and I'm not saying that casually or it sounds cliche, but they truly are like they're really. Um, yeah. I mean, how did they how do they receive really you? Guys. I mean, I'm assuming they must have been pretty darn grateful that somebody, especially with your skill set, shows up and is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you take back your country just because I think it's the right mm-hmm. thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. These guys were incredibly gracious. Um, they were, it was, it was funny, uh, when I first showed up, the, the other guys on, on the Free Burma Rangers team had already been there for a couple of months. And so I sort of showed up. And the other guys on the, on the team were uh, uh, former special, a couple of Special Forces guys and a couple of former Marines. Um, and so... Uh, so when I showed up, I was still I was literally fresh out of the fresh out of the SEAL teams. Um, I left and literally got a flight directly and flew directly to Iraq. Like I, I was still technically in the Navy, uh, on, but I was on leave, <laughs> on uh, terminal leave when I went to Iraq. It's so, usually not I, what I think I, people I, do when they're on leave. But yeah, go ahead. No, no. <laughs> um, and so yeah, when I when I flew to Iraq, I, when I started working with these guys, um, my guard was still very much up. You know, I always had my hand on my rifle. I was always you know, kind of had my standoffish and just, I was thinking very tactically and I had to like, I had to really let my guard down and learn that I could trust these guys. And I talk about that in the book city of death where, um, you know, I'm, I'm first mingling with these Iraqi soldiers and they're they're So to answer your question, they were a little bit standoffish at first because I was acting different and they didn't understand why I was acting all tactical, you know? So I had to kind of cool it. Um, and become a little bit more comfortable around them. But Did, once that happened, they were incredibly gracious, incredibly kind to us. Um, we, you know, we didn't even speak the same language, but these guys would come hang out with us in, like, whatever room we were sleeping in, and they'd just come hang out, and they're sitting there all talking in Arabic, and we're just sitting there talking in English, and everybody's just laughing and having a good time. It was, it was very uh, quite quite a surreal experience. Yeah. What can you tell me about the about the enemy side of the equation? I mean, what did you mm-hmm. what did you see from them in terms of tactics, in terms of their their skill level on the battlefield, and also obviously the aftermath of the the atrocities and the violence they committed against civilians? I mean, just you know, give us a picture of what the other side of the battlefield's like. Oh man! So I'll tell you what. So I I fought to give you comparison. I fought the uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. 
Um, and I'll tell you what, man, this fighting ISIS was, a t- was an entirely different animal, not just because like, we didn't have air support and, and, and whatever else, but uh, the ISIS, the ISIS fighters were honestly, they were, they were good. They were really good. And by the time we were pushing into West Mosul, sort of at the end of the caliphate, that was their last stand, right? That West Mosul was their Alamo. Um, you know, all, all the dumb ones were already dead. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> all the guys, you know, they, they were, they had already been wiped out. And so it was extremely difficult to spot an ISIS fighter in the in the urban sprawl of what was going on. Um, I think I think I only saw one confirmed ISIS fighter who popped out and fired an RPG. Um, you know, and because they they would hide, they 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 had I think three years to prepare Mosul for this offensive. So you know, they'd be two three rooms deep in these buildings. They had they were shooting from all kinds of hidden vantage points, and it was it was absolutely terrifying. And you know, of course. They know what streets we have to go down, so those are all mined and booby-trapped, and they'd use suicide bombers, car bombs, you name it, and it was, it was insane. And a couple other things that were interesting about this fight were the, the Islamic State fighters that were there, one, they knew it was the last battle, so they were not trying to save ammunition. And two, a lot of the Islamic State fighters, this was a very interesting thing, a lot of the bodies that we found of guys, uh, of, of Islamic State fighters that we killed during the assault, a lot of them were uh, European guys. A lot of them were white, really? uh, you know, uh, Chechens huh. and things like that. Yeah, and we'd find we'd find um, handbooks and Qurans and sniper handbooks and stuff like that written in Russian. Um, and the, the the reason for that was because the other Islamic State fighters were trying to, and some of them successfully did, escape with the civilian crowds that were fleeing. You know, they'd shave their beard and they'd try to blend in as best they could with the crowds. The crowds a lot of times would point them out to us. But the the white guys were not able to they weren't able to do that. The white Islamic State fighters were not able to do that. So a lot of the guys that we came across were um, were those guys. And then they also again the final point is that they knew they were going to die. They knew they were going to die, and they knew they were going to be martyred. So no matter no matter what they did, you know, according to their beliefs, they were going to go to heaven, right? So that's why you know you'd mentioned the the day that I got shot. You know, we were rescuing a girl and a man from a pile of of rotting bodies. Um, more than 150 people have been slaughtered in the street right in front of ISIS headquarters there in West Mosul. And they were, you know, the ISIS guys had no problem doing that because, you know, they're going to be martyred and go to heaven anyway. And these people are apostates, so they are able to do that. So the level of cruelty was was insane, but they're also their sophistication was also incredible. Um, one final point, they were also making their own ammunition, like RPG ammunition. They were making uh, one-time-use rockets in like little factories in random buildings all throughout Mosul, which I didn't even think was possible, but they figured out how to do it and they were doing it. Um, literally like factory made RPG rounds and launcher tubes and all this stuff. So incredibly sophisticated, incredibly ruthless. And um, I, it was an honor to be a part of dealing with it because, you know, this was, this is my generation's Nazis, you know, like if you had been alive, or if we had been alive during, you know, World War II, it would have been amazing to contribute to the downfall of the Nazis, right? Well, this is our generation's chance. Yeah, the Islamic is State is a is a is that. a death cult. It's a, it's a genocidal, exactly. mass raping <laughs> death cult. And yeah, uh, well, yeah. it's you know, I, and, and it's something that you know, I, I think that uh, it's it's a good reminder for everybody out there. I mean, just, Ephraim, one question for you. I, I know you were a SEAL. I know you fought in, in in Afghanistan. When you're in the midst of this, and it's pretty incredible that there are videos of you in Mosul running to people who have been wounded. You got wounded yourself. You know, you've got, uh, what are you, carrying an AK, and you're running around, you're doing all these mm-hmm. things. You've got some Americans with you, you've got some, uh, some uh, Iraqis in view. 
what do you, th- I mean, do, are you just completely focused on the task at hand? I mean, are, do you ever break psychologically into a moment where you just say, oh my gosh, what the heck am I doing here? And then go back into, <laughs> go back into your training or? Yes, that's an excellent question. So one of the things that I talk about in City of Death, um, and that one, one of the things I wanted to make, I, I didn't want this to be another SEAL book, right? There's there's dozens of <laughs> SEAL books out there. I didn't want this to be that. I talk a little bit about my time in the SEALs, but I wanted this to be a very open and realistic portrait of what it's like to be in this fighting. And so to answer your question, I, and, I, and I talk about it in the book City of Death, is yes, there were absolutely there was times I completely lost my composure. Um, I on the first day of the assault into West Mosul, which I didn't even know we were assaulting into West Mosul that day. I thought we were just kind of moving forward a little bit. Um, I literally broke down and started weeping um, as I held this little girl's hand who had been shot in the face. And, um, you know, the, the other medics were working on her. The, the real medics are working on her. And I, there's nothing I could do to help her. And I just held her hand and just was like, I, I just hoped that she would survive. And I just began weeping. And I've never lost my composure before, you know, in, in combat. And then that same exact night, ISIS counterattacked, and we our position was hit with seven or eight rockets, our RPGs, like direct hits within a matter of 10 minutes. It was insane, the amount of firepower that was coming back at us. And yeah, we were all like, dude, what are we doing here? We're, we're potentially going to die tonight. And we all had to make that decision. And I, and I know I certainly did. I really internalized it. And I was like, dude, am I, am I willing to die for these Iraqi people? Am I willing to die to hold the line with the Iraqi army? And, you know, and these guys aren't even, you know, fighting back effectively. And yeah, I, I, there was a lot of introspection. There was a lot of, I don't have to be here. I, you know, I paid my own way to be there. I wasn't paid to be there. You know, I had to buy my own plane ticket. Um, and yeah, so there was a lot of introspection. And then the day that I was wounded, the day that we went on that mission, you know, we were talking about it before and afterwards, the guys that were on the mission, as a former special forces guy, his name is uh, David Eubank. He's the founder of Free Burma Rangers. And then my other buddy, uh, Sky Barkley, a uh, former Marine, you know, he, we had been talking before we went out into this mission. We were like, dude, we're going to die. You know, there was, it was, it was that bad. We were going directly into ISIS territory. They had the high ground on the flanks. And that, uh, luckily the U S military um, commanders, we, we called them or the David Eubank called them and uh, they, they agreed to give us a, a smoke screen. So they literally fired an artillery barrage smoke screen to kind of blind the enemy a little bit. Um, and we ran behind an Iraqi army tank straight into the straight into the fray. Uh, they started dropping mortars and opened up on us with machine guns, and we were able to get you know two people out. So yeah, there was a ton of introspection, um, and I talk about it in detail in the book. And a lot of the feedback that people have been giving me from the book is they're like, "Thank you for being honest. Thank you for telling what it's really like being there." You know, because I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be some big tough guy because I'm not. I'm really not. I'm just a normal human being uh, who wants to who wants to help people. And yeah, so I, I discuss all those fears and all those, all those doubts and a lot of that. Like, what the heck am I doing, man? You know, there's well, there's Ephraim, a you're you're a warrior and you're a courageous and principled guy, man. And thank you for your service to this country and thank you for your service in uh, for for humanity as well. The book mm. is City of Death: Humanitarian Warriors in the Battle of Mosul. I actually just purchased it right now on Amazon. I recommend you all do oh. the same. Yeah. Ephraim, thank you so much, man. Great to have you on. Thank you for your service been a brutal week for Facebook. In fact, a difficult few months. You know why? People are figuring out that there's a lot of left-wing nonsense going on at that company, a lot of tilting the conversation away from conservatism and toward progressivism using algorithms and terms of service policy, all kinds of stuff. You know what gets around all that? A new social media platform called snippy.com. If you've looked at snippy.com in the past and left, you need to look again. Thousands of my listeners 
have joined Snippy and are expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. Not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. Snippy is a place where everyone can express their thoughts and share their opinions. It is free to join, folks. Costs you nothing. Go join Snippy.com. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning, no conversational health nonsense, just pure thoughts shared on a platform meant for you. Snippy.com. Even though peas and carrots have received a presidential pardon, I have warned them that House Democrats are likely to issue them both subpoenas. <laughs> Nonetheless, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I will be issuing both peas and carrots a presidential pardon. Unfortunately, I can't guarantee that your pardons won't be enjoined by the Ninth Circuit. Always happens. They're guaranteed. It's kind of funny, right? It's kind of funny. Um, I, you know, I, I got to say, I don't really, that, that's obviously from Trump pardoning the turkey today. The ceremony apparently goes back to the, the 1940s. Um, and, you know, it's been a thing for a while here. And, and during George H.W. Bush's first Thanksgiving as president, um, there's been this tradition of, for the president to pardon the turkey. I, I don't, what is, hold on a second, here we go. Here's the WhiteHouseHistory.org, uh, pardoning the Thanksgiving turkey. Here's what it says. The official pardoning of White House turkeys is an interesting White House tradition that has captured the imagination of the public, eh, I wouldn't go that far, buddy, in recent years. It's often stated that President Lincoln's 1863 clemency to a turkey recorded in an 1865 dispatch by White House reporter Noah Brooks was the origin for the pardoning ceremony. Reports of turkeys as gift to American presidents can be traced to the 1870s when Rhode Island poultry dealer Horace Vose began sell, uh, sending well-fed birds to the White House. The first families did not always feast upon Vose's turkeys, but the yearly offering gained his farm widespread publicity and became a veritable institution at the White House. At Thanksgiving 1913, a turkey come lately from Kentucky shared a few minutes of fame with the fine-feathered Rhode Islander. Soon after, in December, Horace Vose died, thus ending an era. By 1914, the opportunity to give a turkey to a president was open to everyone, and poultry gifts were frequently touched with patriotism, partisanship, and glee. In 1921, an American Legion post for, okay, etc. We got a lot more here. Uh, recently, White House mythmakers claimed that President Truman began the tradition of pardoning a turkey. However, the Truman Library disputes this. Uh, 1947, 1948, Truman accepted two turkeys, coming handy for Christmas dinner. 1981, the practice of sending the presentation turkey to a farm became the norm under Ronald Reagan. The turkey, oh wait, CNN did what? Play clip 13, John? President Trump pardoning uh, the Thanksgiving turkey, the annual tradition, peas, the name of this turkey, and just the most unusual dichotomy here as this comes on the heels of a statement that the president has put out, essentially pardoning Saudi Arabia and the crown prince and the king there, despite what his intel community is expected to put out in a report today that Saudi Arabia is behind, that these leaders of Saudi Arabia are behind the killing of a Washington Post journalist. Wow, what a 
forced transition there. Oh my gosh. The pardoning of the turkey. Kind of like the pardoning of Saudi Arabia. Wow. CNN. You you can do better than that. That is that was really that was weak. That was weak. That was pretty funny. Um uh, but that's Trump's not allowed to do anything without it being uh an opening for criticism. Trump can't even pardon the turkey without the pardoning of the turkey being used against him. You know, the emoluments clause or something with the turkey. That's what it is. Yeah, that's the ticket. Every year this topic comes up, and I just don't understand why. How to have a conversation with your angry uncle over Thanksgiving. That's that's what this New York Times piece is called. And I, I see variations of this year in and year out. You know, and, and here's what it says, quote, Thanksgiving is a beloved holiday because it's a time to gather with relatives from afar. It's a dreaded holiday for the same reason. Many of us aren't accustomed to socializing with people who think differently from us, especially about politics. Our political attitudes and beliefs are intertwined with our most basic human needs, needs for safety, belonging, identity, self-esteem and purpose. And when they're threatened, we're biologically wired to respond as if we're in physical peril. no. No, false. I'm going to stop right there. This is how liberals view things. This is not how conservatives view things. I don't view my politics as essential to my safety, belonging, identity, self-esteem, and purpose. Not at all. In fact, I view my politics as, eh, I think this is the best way to get this thing that we're all trying to get or that I think we should all have or that is, you know, intrinsic to human nature. But I'm open to debate it. I'm open to thinking about it another way. And, And honestly... You know, my opinion, no one person's opinion matters all that much anyway. Pass the gravy. That's kind of how I feel about this stuff. But they uh, they set up this angry uncle bot that, that's supposed to be kind of like a training, a training module for libs that have to deal with, clearly with conservatives, right? Because conservatives are the ones that are going to be difficult. Conservatives are the ones that they say are going to be a problem. So he writes, hey, it's the angry uncle bot. I have lots of opinions. But what kind of Uncle Bot do you want to chat with? Then you have to reply, I'm more liberal, so I'll chat with conservative Uncle Bot, and I'm more conservative, so I'll chat with liberal Uncle Bot. All right, so I click on I'm more liberal, so I'll chat just because I want to see what they say. Uh, Great, well, let me tell you something. Trump has been great for America. Just look at the economy. It's booming. This is what the bot, and you can click on this thing, right? It's it's like a video game. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure for politics. So look at the economy, it's booming. And then you have to click on how would you reply? Trump's been good for the rich. The jobs numbers are misleading. So how are you doing financially? You know, all all annoying left-wing things to say. Let's go with, John, what do you think? Let's go with the jobs numbers are misleading. I hear that one a lot. And then the response is, you don't like them because Trump looks good. Hashtag fake news. And then the moderator comes in and says, this is not, not a good choice. This will turn the conversation into a debate over facts and figures. That's a problem because people tend not to be persuaded by contrary evidence. Try this response instead. So how are you doing financially? Good choice. The goal is to start a conversation. So basically, this is training, folks. I know there's a liberal version and a conservative version, but obviously people read the Times are all going to be a bunch of screaming libs. This is training that libs need for how to talk to conservatives and their family. And it's just so funny to me because... I've had to talk to libs my whole life all the time, all around me. The, the notion that as an adult who has political views and beliefs, I would need the New York Times. I, I get it too, right? I mean, these 
this is supposed to be kind of cute. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. I'm not trying to be the Ebenezer Scrooge of Thanksgiving conversation here, although maybe I am. Uh, but it, it's just it just goes to show you, you, you know what the best thing to do on Thanksgiving is? Just enjoy being around family and friends and, and just don't get into annoying, contentious topics. You know, just don't do it. It doesn't matter. You're not going to win anything. You're not going to convince anyone of anything. It's just much less important. And I really do believe that libs have a much stronger inclination on this. Libs are much more likely to uh, just get way out of, get their nose bent out of joint on uh, this one um, and freak out because they view, to that intro, the point made of the intro, they view politics as intrinsic to their being and who they are and all this other stuff. And it's just not really the case. Uh, you know, It's funny. I think in this current environment, you're probably better off talking about religion and religious belief than you are about Trump. It's more likely that you could agree on, is there a God? And you know what is the, the truest or the only true religion than you are to get people on the opposing side of the Trump discussion to talk about things in a in a civil fashion you know you don't want someone to throw the turkey drumstick at you those things can be kind of big you know you don't want you don't want some kind of an incident so you know how to have a conversation with your angry uncle why do they assume the uncle's angry by the way what about the aunt i've got some very opinionated aunts you know what what, what why they gotta assume that there's mansplaining going on there could be woman-splaining over that thanksgiving turkey i'm just i'm just checking all the boxes my friends roll calls up next The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Two shows away from Thanksgiving on the Roll Call. That's where we are here, folks. Wow. Time flies when you're... Doing a syndicated talk show. I've got to tell you, can't believe we're already here. I've been living in the swamp for six months. Six months. I got to tell you, I miss I miss my Big Apple. You know, home is home, and for me, home is that big, smelly, overpriced concrete jungle known as New York City. But uh, DC, no, I miss home. Uh, but it's good for the work. I get to interact with all the swamp creatures and bring you additional insights and knowledge and things like that because I'm here. So that part of it's cool. My gosh, I'm so tired. I'm actually drinking drinking coffee at this stage of the game. That's probably a bad idea. Now, no wonder I can't sleep at night. But it's Black Rifle Coffee. That's the good news. Tastes delicious. All right, uh, facebook.com slash and Team, I want I want some Facebook first-timers. You know, I've got a, a big crew of wonderful, wonderful Team Buck folks who will write in on a regular basis and obviously, we get a lot of notes in that are that are first timers in general. But I would love it for the holidays to get some Team Buck first timers in the uh, inbox here. All you do is go to the page, facebook.com slash bucksex, and send me a message there. And uh, thank you so much for doing so whenever you get the chance. Douglas writes, uh, you are good on rising. Today's co-host and the panel were not too bright and extremely partisan same as all the other shows. Well, Douglas, I'm glad that you think that I'm good on rising. It's not easy to carry the conservative banner in, in that environment. And I, I do it as tactfully as I can, because I, as I've said, I, I agreed when I came on the show to take a not too aggressive 
uh, position with my conservative views. So I, I've I make my case, but I'm not going to shout. I'm not going to lose my temper and and all the rest of it. So that that's how I, I view all of it. Uh, but thank you for your support of what I do. Martin writes, can you verify is uh, Wikipedia is telling the truth about you, especially in the footnotes? It appears that Wikipedia is a uh, takes a leftist slant to things written in it. History will be kind to me for I shall rewrite it. Signed, Wikipedia. Uh, Martin, no, I've had left wingers uh, go try to de- delete my Wikipedia page. Um, I've had them try to put things on there that are not true. Uh, this is the way that, unfortunately, social justice left acts on this stuff. This is the way that they uh, that they will, you know, they conduct themselves. So, yep, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, so there you go. I mean, I, the, oh, I don't even have a, I don't even have a Wikipedia page right now because they deleted it. Uh, they have deleted it. Um, so I don't know what else to tell you other than, yep, uh, the social justice warriors, they're going to come after me and, you know, they're just, they're just scum. I mean, I get so, I really have an honest disdain for these, uh, particularly for these progressive guys out there who are just so smarmy and nasty, beta male pajama boy cowards you know that that's really the the designation that's what they are and they all work at the huffington post and moveon.org and slate and all these just talking points memo what's that other one daily coast he's just just steaming dung heaps of of pseudo content that don't need to exist but they do for whatever reason I just don't. I just tend not to like those people. I mean, I'm sure there's some people there who are fine, but in general, I mean, in general, if you work for MoveOn.org or you work for Media Matters, you're probably not a very good person. Not not true all the time, but in general, it's uh, it's a fair bet. Especially Media Matters. Media Matters is a disgrace. Um, but I could go on and on. So yeah, Wikipedia, did they, uh, they've deleted my page and people keep trying to put, hey, any of you listening, please go back and restore my Wikipedia page. How about that? Uh, it says thoroughly sourced as a lot of other Wikipedia pages that were out there. I've never written on it myself, uh, obviously, but you know, they've, they've deleted it. So it's just such an annoyance. They just don't want people to be able to easily find me in my bio and background because they, they, on, they, it's a form of deplatforming. They want to deplatform me on the internet, and that's that's what they're doing. It's disgusting. I hate these clowns. Philip Wright Shields, hi, Buck. You've talked about this before, but with the recent McRaven comments, please uh, visit why general flag officers tend to be social liberals. I have a few hunches. It starts with the service academies, which, in my experience, churned out the more liberal officers of my peer group. A life of insular focus and later fetid as royalty as they rise to flag rank these senior officers have never lived or worked outside of a socialist environment. Therefore, while they're often great military minds, their whole personal experience is one of social prestige like an elite in any society. Philip, I think your analysis, and I'm guessing you're military yourself, um, you're, I mean, you're military, I can see from your bio, your analysis is spot on. Uh, it's just that the nature of people that rise to the elite levels of the military command structure, not the elite levels you know, when I think of elite military, I think of JSOC, I think of SEALs, uh, Army Rangers, Delta, Special Forces, 
uh, MARSOC, you know, Air Force PJs, etc. Et I mean, that's when I think of elite military, that's what that's what comes to mind. But at the elite levels of the military command structure, yeah, these are people that are much more like politicians than they are like warriors in many cases. And and that's their day. Their day to day is much more similar to what you'd have as a congressman than what you'd have as a, a door kicker. Uh, so I, I do think that that affects their approach and, and certainly the perception they have of the world around them. And also, I, I know that it's true on the intel analyst and, and civilian side, you know, you de- tend to need advanced degrees to impress the promotion boards of some of these places. And so when you get advanced degrees, there's a, a certain level of indoctrination that occurs because you're talking about social science advanced degrees, not like getting a Ph.D. in math. Right. You're getting a, a degree in international relations, a degree in political science or one of those things. And, yeah, those are liberal strongholds. So there's a degree of and, and you everybody's affected by this. Right. You want people around you to think you're smart and you want to sound smart. So you end up saying the things that the smart people say. Now, that all said, I mean, I'm just speaking about bureaucracies in general. I mean, I have no experience. I've never been in the military. I have no experience of the military command structure myself. So, uh, you know, your your analysis, Philip, is more astute on that than mine. I can tell you, though, that, you know, if you want to be CIA director, you got to kiss a lot of butt and you got to get advanced degrees. And that's pretty much it. You, you don't have to be some super intel officer. You, you really just have to be a politician. Um, so as to the military side of it, I leave that to the many, many, many of you listening in this audience right now who are current or former military. Uh, one of the great points of pride in this show is what a, a huge and robust military listenership we have. Um, Laurel writes, hey, Buck, Laurel in Idaho here. Uh, was it one of your sponsors, which is the free TV website app? I listen at work and don't always remember to write down the important stuff. LOL, Laurel. Um Free TV. Are you talking about Snippy.com? It's a new social media platform, Laurel. That's a sponsor on the show. Maybe that's what you're you're going for. Um, I'm not sure though. Uh, Timothy writes, "Here's a bearded picture for you from a Californian living in Canada. Talk about moving from the pan into the fire. Wow, Timothy, your beard is your beard is like is next level, dude. Like you could be a character in." a TV show about the Civil War and and all the other Civil War guys would be like, gotta respect Timothy's beard. So props, my friend. Thank you. Timothy writes, oh, another, this is a different Timothy. Shields High Buck, stop the madness with the burgers. Pickles are an absolute necessity for a counterpoint to the red meat flavor. Go to Five Guys. I know Obama likes it too. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut and get a bacon cheeseburger all the way. It will change your life. Okay, Timothy, a few things here. All right. First of all, I love five guys. Okay. Second of all, even though I can't eat the bun, obviously. Second of all, I don't know why people are so dug in on this pickle on burger thing. I mean, look, I understand that you've been propagandized to by the pickle industry for many, many years now. I understand that McDonald's, unfortunately, fell victim to the pickle on burger craze a long time ago. But it doesn't have to be that way. I'm showing you a glimpse of a brighter, better future where we don't have to have pickles on our burgers. We can have a pickle on the side of the plate, right next to your French fries, right next to your chips, you know, whatever it is you want to have there. Right next to your Brussels sprouts, if you're like me and you try to eat Brussels sprouts with every meal. Uh, that's just the way that it, 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 it can be, Timothy. 
I'm trying to show you a glimpse of a brighter future. That's it, Five Guys is excellent. Although my favorite of the fast food burger chains is is In-N-Out Burger. Uh, In-N-Out's my number one. Even though the fries at In-N-Out are not that good. John, have you had the have you had the uh, the fries at In-N-Out and Five Guys? Five Guys fries are better, but In-N-Out Burger is is definitely uh you know definitely my favorite for the actual burger. Um, by the way, John, you better be ready tomorrow. We're talking Thanksgiving food, fa- Thanksgiving traditions. We're gonna have a whole a whole shebang planned. You ready for that action? Bad news, Buck. I'm out tomorrow. Wow, wow. I'm. I don't even know what to say now. John. Brandon you know, will be here. Just leaving me. Yeah, Brandon. I don't know. Brandon doesn't get as excited about food. He gets excited about music, but food. He's not a foodie. That's all right. We'll talk to him about it anyway. Willie is uh, next here. He writes, hey, Buck, I live in SoCal, quite a distance from the fires. The saddest part of the fiasco is the loss of life and the feeling that it could have been a much smaller tragedy if only common sense were used. Governor Brown uh, blamed global warming not so long ago. He seemed rather quiet during Trump's visit. What worries me most, do we need a tragedy before we realize sanctuary cities and state policies are as dangerous as fires? How the voter, how the veterans, uh, or rather, how the voters can vote for the Dems stuns me. Thanks for your excellent program, Willie. Well, thank you, Willie. And let me tell everybody out there, uh, please do send me your Thanksgiving thoughts for tomorrow. We'll try to get a lot of that in on the show. What's the best side dish on Thanksgiving feast day? What are you thankful for? What are you looking forward to in 2019? All that good stuff. Anything you want to send for the show tomorrow, facebook.com slash Buck Sexted. Talk to you then. Shields high.